I want to start this morning with uh, just a really quick pop quiz. Uh, does anyone remember, can, can anyone think back to last month, in particular the 6th of May? What happened on the 6th of May that was significant? Anyone? Okay, a little murmurings. No, no, one, no one willing to kind of shout something out. Okay, there was a significant event that took place on the 6th of May, which is just over a month ago. Millions of people across the world tuned in for this particular event. Okay, now you're starting to get the picture. Of course, it was the coronation of Charles as king and his wife, Camilla. They were formally recognised as king and queen of the United Kingdom and other Commonwealth realms. That was a significant event. And this was like an initiation ceremony. Um, It included all of these regal royal acts as a part of the coronation. Charles held uh, this ornamental staff. Um, There were these orbs that were made of these precious jewels. And of course, uh, the most significant um, item when we think of a kingship, he had a crown with uh, the crown there with all the jewels in it. And he was given that crown to wear as a part part of the coronation. And apart from all of these items being beautiful and precious and unique in so many ways, all of these um, items as a part of the coronation ultimately are symbols. That is, they represent something. And in this case, for the monarchy, the crown and the scepter and the orbs represent authority. They were symbols, or they are symbols of power and authority. And really, the person who is in possession of these things is ultimately saying when they put them on, when they hold them, when they use them, that that I am the one in charge. I'm the one who kind of has this power and this authority. And although in today's day and age, kings and queens rule and assert power and authority in, in different ways, and it might look different, ultimately this coronation event that took place um, announced to the world that Charles and Camilla were king and queen of the UK. And there were all these you know, joyous celebrations, there were street parties, um, there were these um, special commemorative church services, there was even a, uh, a concert that was held at Windsor Castle, and on the other side of the coin there were people who protest against the you know, monarchy as a regime as well, so there's a lot of stuff happening around this particular event. When we think about authority, uh, when we think about those who have power over our lives, Uh, we have to consider our current and changing cultural landscape because I think changes in our culture have made us at least somewhat hostile to the idea and to the experience of authority that happens in our own lives. We as good 21st century citizens of democracy, we don't particularly have a great uh, fondness for kings. Um, The English chopped off the head of Charles I. They established a republic. Uh, The French beheaded King Louis XVI. The United States fought a revolutionary war just to stop King George from having a rule over them. You know, we like it when royals kind of show up to special commemorative events and cut ribbons at hospitals and do these kinds of acts. Um, We tolerate them now that they don't have as much control over us. We prefer, ultimately, democracy and the ability to choose. 
And with so many options and so many things uh, that are available to us in terms of choice in our own lives, we have the ability, you and I, to choose so many things. We have the ability, in some sense, to shape or create our own worlds through the choices that we make. You know, we can design our own personal look and then we can change it the next day. We can customise our home with, with smart device technology that gives us control of our home from wherever we are in the world. Um, we can indulge in deluxe experiences that allow us to kind of feel like we are celebrities. Um, even experiences where we get to meet or engage with celebrities these days. Uh, we can travel and move throughout the world uh, more efficiently and more quickly than we've ever been able to do before. That's a sense of power right there. We have the power in our hands to do so many things. And our culture, uh, when we look at it broadly, seemingly says that we can seemingly have an ultimate value without submitting to anyone. In our 21st century culture, We've actually been deceived into thinking that we have more authority than we actually do. You see, we want the kingdom without the king. We want the privileges, we want the titles, the experiences, the things that give us the benefits of a life that we ultimately desire, a good life. We want the power and the authority to be able to control and shape our own lives and we kind of want that without having to come under the authority of anyone in particular. We basically want to make our own decisions and have the right to rule and to reign over our own lives. And this morning, uh, we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark, and we come to what is known as Passion Week. This is a very significant week in the life of Jesus because we see it's the week leading up to his death where he enters into Jerusalem. And we're hopefully going to see what it meant for first century Jews at the time to recognise who Jesus was as king. Because these people, more than us, were, were accustomed to living under kings and more impacted than their rule and reign than we are right now. So we're going to read together. We're going to have it on the screen if you want to follow along in your Bibles. We are in Mark chapter 11 and we're going to read the first 11 verses uh, from this chapter this morning. Mark 11, verse 1 to 11. Let's read together. As they approached Jerusalem, they being Jesus and his disciples, they came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back there here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus they th and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. 
Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's quite a grand entrance, isn't it? that Jesus um, makes into Jerusalem here. You know, up until this particular point of time in his ministry, Jesus has been walking everywhere on foot, apart from the times when he's crossed um, the rivers, or sorry, the lakes on, on a boat. He's been on foot, but now there's this staged arrival. He chooses to enter into Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. And it is, in some sense, this complete reversal that we see at this point of time in his ministry. Jesus is no longer employing people to keep quiet about who he is. He's no longer saying, you know, don't tell anyone what I've been doing. He now encourages this public display of rejoicing um, as he enters into Jerusalem in this way. His actions encourage the crowds to shout out his name in the streets, shout Hosanna to who he is. And to add to all of this, this was the time of Passover, so the crowds were particularly expectant at this, during this particular season of time. So they're ready for this, and so they see Jesus coming, and the crowds just welcome him. They think this is going to be the moment that Jesus comes. The promised king is coming to deliver them. He's coming to take Jerusalem and he's going to triumph over Jerusalem. They thought the kingdom of David, as they said in this uh, passage, they thought this was about to come. All the promises were leading up to this and it was about to come as Jesus was going to take Jerusalem by force. And the words they actually used to describe um, his entrance into Jerusalem was that it was a triumphant entry. Now, when we think about something that's triumphant, in particular like a triumphal procession, in your own head you might think of something like a ticker tape parade or a, um, you know, a street parade or something like that. Usually where we think of it when a sporting team, you know, maybe wins a championship, they win it in another state or another place, they bring the trophy back home, they go down the main street, everyone has this big fanfare and celebration. Um, that's what we think of when we think about triumphal procession. But at Jesus' particular time, uh, and with, it, with the Roman world, it meant that actually a triumphal procession looked quite different. It was more like imperialistic propaganda that was going on here than a ticker tape parade. Because what would happen for the Romans when a general or a Caesar would uh, capture or, or take over or have victory over another people group, usually what they would do is they would plunder all of their possessions, they would enslave their people, and they would kind of bring them back, all these objects and these people back then, then back home and parade them as, the, as they walked through their own city in victory over these people. And that sort of procession reinforced the idea of power, it reinforced the idea of violence for the Romans um, and within their political system. And it also kind of said, well, you know what, um, these people who are triumphing, they can be godlike in their power, in their ability to have victory and assert their dominance over other people. Now, Jesus is welcomed into Jerusalem with this great fanfare but then we see at the end of this passage in verse 11, it just ends with this anti-climax. We see he goes into the temple, he has a look around, and then it says, since it was already late, he just went back to Bethany with the disciples. Now the crowds here, in expecting Jesus to come, they've got things all wrong. 
They want Jesus and they think he's going to come in this typical monarch approach. They think he's going to come and rule and reign in Jerusalem and establish this empire that is going to be a huge benefit to their people. They think Jesus is the guy who's going to deliver them from the yoke that was Rome, the oppression that the Romans had over the Jews. They thought that Jesus was going to be the one who would bring the poverty and that oppression, all of that stuff for them, their people, to an end. But this kind of rule, this kind of reign, this kind of kingdom would be a temporary kingdom at best. Because while it was appropriate for the people to actually greet Jesus with great rejoicing, to greet Jesus shouting out Hosanna as they did, the reality is that Jesus did not come to set up this grand earthly kingdom. Jesus didn't come to rule with an iron fist to wield his power and assert his dominance in the way that people had done before. He didn't come to create, you know, political flourishing or economic stability or social balance or any of those kind of things within the systems of the day that were already in place. The kingdom that Jesus would actually come and establish would be, in fact, an upside-down kingdom and would eventually be the equivalent of an inverted triumphal procession when the king himself would die on a cross. So as king, the pathway for Jesus was one of suffering, was one of rejection. It was one that he predicted would happen. He, he openly spoke about it happening throughout his ministry as, as he was seeing people. But nevertheless, Jesus declared and claimed the kingdom by presenting himself at this point of time as the heir of David. And that was according to prophecies and all the rest. And then what we see as Jesus enters into Jerusalem is this open confrontation by Jesus in announcing his kingship and his kingdom in ways that just are not expected by the people. And we see this play out in a whole range of different ways from chapter 11 to 13. Jesus does uh, a bunch of things. I'm going to kind of group them into three categories just to give us a bit of a snapshot here. Um, He declares, he teaches and he warns. We see that Jesus declares himself as king. Um, He says, I'm the cornerstone that the builders rejected. In this case, the builders are the Pharisees who reject him. Um, He says, I am the Messiah. I'm the promised deliverer. He teaches as well about where it is that his authority comes from. He he speaks about giving to God or rendering to God what is God and giving back to Caesar what is Caesar's. He, He tells the parable of the widow's offering and about how she gave so much more just from those two coins in comparison to all the others who announced their giving. Um, he speaks about the great, or teaches about the greatest commandment being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself. And then as well as that, he gives warnings in these chapters. He warns the temple is going to be torn down. He warns two particular key people groups that have influence and leadership when it comes to the temple, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. He warns all these people. And everything that Jesus is doing in these two chapters really announces his kingship and God's kingdom that it is already here. Now, it's already been happening um, before now. 
just to be clear, but this has now become a more open confrontation, a more deliberate, intentional approach where Jesus is starting to engage with people in a more intentional way. Speaking about announcements, the 9th of January 2007, there was another announcement that was made that was pretty significant for the Western world. And that was the announcement of the first ever iPhone. Did anyone ever own a, a very first? It was a 2G iPhone, if anyone can remember that. Two, not a 3G one, a 2G iPhone. Um, and this phone, you know, it looked different. It had one button at the bottom. It had a little button on the side. And you used your finger to, like, point on the screen. And people were kind of like, what is this thing? What do we do? Where's the buttons down the bottom we need to click, right? But that phone, as it was announced to the world in 2007, has since changed the course of technological history. I think that's pretty fair to say. And today, over 2.3 billion iPhones have actually been sold throughout the world. That's a staggering number. It's fair to say when there's that kind of level of, of sales is that there's going to be some sort of significant impact that is made, right? But the way that the iPhone had an impact or has had an impact on our world is absolutely nothing. It holds nothing, not even a candle, in comparison to the way that Jesus announced himself as king and the impact of his kingdom. Let's keep reading. Mark 11, three verses from verse 15 through to 18. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Jesus continues to, to speak and continues to, to have action that is confrontational. He's been acclaimed as a prophet, and the thing with prophets are is that they don't just speak words, they don't just verbally announce uh, things, they live and breathe the convictions. If you're a prophet, you, you've, your very core being believes and, and embodies the words that God has given to you. And so for Jesus, he physically and he literally engaged in action as a part of his communication here in these three verses. And we see this play out when Jesus begins to drive out the buyers and sellers from the temple. He appears as this prophet who's charismatic in many ways, who's graphically now acting out God's rejection of the temple as this, this cult, as this den of robbers. He's clearing it and in overturning the tables of the money changers and of the benches of the sellers, we have this imagery that's happening of the temple that's being destroyed, that's being overturned. It will be destroyed and, and essentially Jesus is saying the glory days of the temple are coming to the end. Now, why is this so significant in this moment? 
Well, it's significant because the temple, it was the central institution. It was the power base for all of the economical and the political life of the time. The temple, it dominated more than just the skyline over Jerusalem. Religiously, it was that touch point between holy and secular, or that separation that people referred to. It was the symbol for God's presence and God's favour on His people, the temple. Um, It also served as the central bank at the time. Um, It was the capital building. Essentially, the temple was the Wall Street of the first century. And for those who who lived within the city, um, the temple was their place of employment. Politically, it was also the power base. You know, it was a place where all the hierarchy for priests and and the religious rulers um, to be able to establish their hierarchy. These are the people who saw themselves as called by God or licensed from heaven to rule over God's temple during their own lifetimes. And so you can imagine with the temple being as significant as it is, here you have Jesus, he comes into this place and he starts overturning tables. You can imagine the surprise, you can imagine the shock, you can imagine just how the people are kind of sitting up and paying attention and saying what is going on here. The priests and the religious leaders are threatened. And so it's not a surprise in many ways that that they began to then look for ways to actually wipe out Jesus. Because as king, Jesus came and he actually, at this point in time, seeks to persuade these people that he is Messiah. He um, answers the scribes who, who say, by what authority do you do these things? The Pharisees try to catch him in his words by asking if it's right to pay taxes to Caesar or not. The Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, say, what will happen um, at, the marriage, uh, at the resurrection for people who are in marriage? The scribes ask him, you know, of all the commandments, what's the greatest? And it says in chapter 12 that after Jesus had answered all of these questions, he'd done the persuading, after Jesus had answered them all, no one dared ask him any more questions. You see, the king and his kingdom is here. So what significance does this have for us? Because the temple's not the central institution in our lives today. Jesus is king. He's already ruling and reigning over all. We've been singing about that already this morning. He's defeated sin and death once and for all. And his promise is that everyone who believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. And yet there are still times, if we think about it, in our own lives where we want the kingdom without the king. We want the benefits and the goodness of God's kingdom. We want the unity. We want the joy. We want the peace, the harmony, the goodness, the results. But we want it without having to bow or submit to the king in our lives, in all of our lives. To submit to him, to give him our desires, our dreams, our plans. To allow his way to be the way that we follow, not our own way to give control of our lives over to him. In this passage, Jesus warned the disciples the darkest times were actually coming at this particular point in history. The destruction of the temple is imminent. 
He told them these uh, lots of big things. Nation is going to rise against nation and brother is going to betray brother. Children are going to rebel against their parents and you're going to be hated because of me. And when we hear these things, when we hear these words coming from Jesus, um, they can be quite extreme. We might feel a bit overwhelmed uh, when we think about some of these pictures that are playing out. But in the midst of all of this, and midst of all of these warnings, Jesus gives us two promises that I want us to finish with and focus on. And these promises are as true for us today as they were for his disciples. Number one, the King is with us. Chapter 11, verse 13, whenever you are arrested, this is Jesus speaking directly to his disciples, he says, whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what to say, just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. He says this at a time when the disciples are the most vulnerable, they're about to be scattered, the Messiah, the one they expected to deliver them, was going to be crucified. And Jesus promises them the Holy Spirit will be with you, will continue to be the one who is there with you even after I am gone. The Holy Spirit will be the one who leads and guides them and gives them the very words to say. And because of this, he says this. He says, do not worry beforehand what you're about to say. How often do we get worried beforehand about what it is that we're going to say? Um, in, in all sorts of scenarios. I'm not just talking just about our faith, but in cha- especially in challenging scenarios or situations where there is discomfort or we need to be on the ball. We can get worried about what we say. We want to be received well. We, we don't want to come across as strange, but Jesus here is saying the Holy Spirit will be the one speaking and working through us at the t- in the times that we most need Him. And that promise is for us as well. And this all comes, of course, before the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and God then pours out His Spirit upon all nations. So that's promise number one. The King is with us. And number two, those who stand firm will be saved. Chapter 13, verse 13. Everyone, Jesus says, will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus is saying here to his his disciples, there's going to be tough times ahead. There's going to be times where you just feel like everyone is just against you. Everyone is coming at you. There's going to be times where you're arrested, where you're put to trial, where you're hated by these people. What's the action? Stand firm, he says. When those things happen, stand firm. Remember what I have taught you. Hold on to those promises. Hold on to the truth of my teaching. He promised um, Jesus that, you know, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for why I have overcome the world. See, Jesus, our King, is with us. He's ready to walk with each and every one of us through the hard times in our lives, the challenges that come. And for life, it won't be an easy road. But you know what? We will not be alone. We are never alone, those who put their trust in Jesus. And so we too should stand firm and put our trust in the King, not in the riches of the world, not in the kingdom, not in our own ability, our own strength. 
we should recognize and remember the great sacrifice of Jesus for us that we don't deserve and yet Christ in his love chose to go to the cross and die for us. So how do we stand firm? How do we do this? We bow to the King. We give up ruling over our own lives. We give up being the ones who ultimately decide what we think is best for ourselves. We live out of His strength, not out of our own. We follow His ruling and His commands, not our own. And the great thing is that when we do this, we announce His kingdom to the world, to those around us. And this is living right here when we do this. Jesus is the light of the world. And as people who follow the King, the light shines brightest in the darkness. And so when good things happen for Jesus, others will take notice. Sometimes we don't recognize what that looks like. We might not realize it, but the light shines brightest in the darkest places. So bow to the King. And we've been hearing this simple message as we've been going throughout this series, this series of Mark, that call of Jesus, come, follow me. Those three words, come, follow me. Bow to the King. I want to invite the uh, musicians to come forward. It's probably not too hard for us to recognize a time in our own lives where we've wanted the kingdom without the King. Maybe we've taken the good things, we've gone our own way, we've followed our own desires, we've done what feels right for ourselves. We haven't bowed to the King. And in, in a moment, we're going to sing this song, Reign Above It All. It's a beautiful song. And as we sing this, the words to these songs, You Reign Above It All, I just want us to take some time this morning as we worship, just to recognise Jesus. Recognise Him, as, as Alex said at the start of our service, He's, he's King over the universe that He created. We can only fathom a small portion of the magnificence of his universe, and he's the king over it. Recognize Jesus as king over all, but also king over your own life. And use this time of worship now as we come before him. Bring your heart before him. Submit to him. If you don't yet have a relationship with Jesus, the great news is this morning that He's offering this to you. He, he's offering the gift of salvation that if we would turn from our ways, acknowledge that the way we've gone has not been right, ask for His forgiveness, then He promises that He will forgive us and He promises that He will be with us. Bow to the King. Let's pray together. Oh God, we, we want to thank you, Lord, just for the way that you have shown us who you are. In many ways, Lord, it is, a, it is ways that surprise us, but it's always for the good. And when you announced your kingship, Jesus, and your kingdom reign as you entered Jerusalem, you also called us 
uh, to, to stand firm and you called us uh, to, to know that you will be with us. And so God, I pray that that truth would sink deep for us, for those of us who follow you, that you are with us, Lord. We ask that you reveal this to us in our lives as we live, God, from day to day, as we go from this place into the world, into our everyday lives, Lord. You've placed us in these positions of influence and you are with us. You're the ones, you are the one who is giving us the words to say. You're the one who is showing us how we are to live. You're the one who is leading us and guiding us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that our response, Lord, would be just to submit to you. And that as we do, God, I pray, um, as we seek after more of you, as we begin to know you more and more deeply, Lord, that it will become even more clear to each one of us how it is um, that we are uh, to live with you, with us. Show us the way forward, Lord, and that your, your light would shine brightly in those dark places. You're the one who reigns above everything. And Lord, we look forward to that day that you return, Lord. Your, our hope is in you, Lord. But even now as we are here, we trust you. We trust you, even though we don't know what tomorrow will bring entirely. We put our trust and our hope in the King. And we just acknowledge that you are the one who reigns above it all. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.